So if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, we're going to pick up the narrative at verse 23. But before we do that, I just wanted to make a couple of comments. John chapter 12 is a huge chapter. There is tons of stuff going on. It starts with a banquet, um, and it ends um, with a warning. And uh, right in the middle is that triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, we have chosen to name it, um, the entry of Christ as King of Israel and spiritual Israel. Um, and as he, as he, when you read that passage, you see like it's like everybody wants to see Jesus. Everybody wants, uh, you know, this is, this is a once-in-a-lifetime event. Um, uh, the, a large crowd had come, verse 12, to the feast. They heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But the point that John makes uh, as the chapter goes on is, is this, and we'll read it in a moment. Uh, everyone wants to see Jesus, but no one seems to want to listen to Him. Um, soon, the person and the message and the work of the King is essentially forgotten what might have, what, what we make a lot of, the king of Israel, uh, seems to disappear into the background, and what rises is something that you're pretty familiar with in our day. What becomes important is the opinions that people have about the king. You notice on newscasts, you know, something happened, and the first thing they do is go and ask you, so what's your opinion? What do you think about this? Is that not the dumbest question? I mean, is that important, what you or I think about some great thing that's going on? And yet that's what kind of fills the page. Everybody's got an opinion. They're talking back and forth. Um, but John takes us beyond that, and he, he, he takes us really into the very heart of Jesus uh, to answer the question, what is it like to be God's son to be the Savior of the world at a time like this. What's it like to be king? What's it like for him? Let's listen to the text, beginning at verse 23 in John. Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, 
This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a very little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Christ is the king, and yet he knows that he's confronting his own suffering and death. And he puts his perspective on that succinctly in verse 27 when he says, um, uh, beginning in verse 27, um, Just I put down, wrote down the wrong reference. Um, yeah, beginning in verse 27, where he describes the, his soul being troubled, um, but then in verse 31, he he sums up in a way what his what's the significance of his suffering and death. He says, "Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people." To myself. What he's saying here is that, that the meaning of all of this, the significance of it is that soon Satan, the troubler of humanity, from the very beginning will be defeated, that the source and origin of evil will be put down. And secondly, he says that as a result of his death, he will gather his people, his church, to himself around his glory, and they'll be one. And these two truths, uh, the, the, the destruction of evil and the gathering together of the church of Christ around his death and his resurrection, demands a response of worship and praise and devotion and obedience. This is an earthquake. This is a tsunami. This is an asteroid hitting the earth. Things will never be the same. However, as we read on, we see that the people are not really in a worshiping mood. Um, they're in, a, in an arrogant mood, in a taunting mood. And so, they, they mock Him. They challenge Him. We have heard from the law, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Um, so, what are you talking about? How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? That is, how can you say that the Christ is going to die on a cross? That can't make any sense. Um, and, and sort of in the ultimate put down, you know, who is, who is the Son of God? It's like, who do you think you are? You know, in one way, it sounds like a lovely, you know, a theological inquiry. Like, you know, we're trying to get this straight. You know, we don't quite understand all this. But sometimes we hide our arrogance and our unbelief behind a mask of theological inquiry. 
What this is, is a dismissal. Um, who is this son of God, uh, the son of man? You know, <laughs> you're, not, you're not that important. Um, we're dismissing you. Um, but Christ, because he is king and savior, and he will not be mocked or dismissed by anyone, especially by those who are just too cool. Um, so he gives them a simple but an urgent warning. A simple but an urgent warning. The light is among you, he says, for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Um, does that sound like a warning? Does that sound serious? I sort of, when I hear that, I sort of think of it as a warning that's given to people who are living in the path of a California wildfire. The warning is this, get out now. Something is required of you. You've only got the light a little while longer. Don't let darkness overtake you. And we can look back at those people, you know, in those days and say, why were they mocking Christ? Why, how did so quickly the, the praise, um, uh, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, how did it get, how did it move on the, on the path to crucify, crucify him with his brief stop at? So who do you think you are anyway? You know, and it's easy for us to say, well, you know, it's a good thing we've all got it figured out, right? You know, we've got our palm branches to prove it. Um, there's always a danger when we come to Scripture and say, yeah, somebody else really needs to hear that. You know, I hope my spouse heard that. I hope my, my neighbor, I hope my kids heard that, or my parents. Um, if we think that we're better than these festival goers who take occasion to mock the Christ, then we're really denying what as, is it, uh, it, we're denying the gospel, uh, which is at the heart and core of Christianity. There's a sense in which we need to hear this warning for ourselves. You know, it's all well and good to wave palm fronds as we sing, but what happens after the waving? Uh, some of us are too cool to wave, um, but you know, what happens after this kind of celebration is, is our palm branches, is the celebration of Palm Sunday simply a polite way of dismissing Christ so that we can actually get on with what are the really important things in our life, you know, our agenda, um, our ideas, our rules. Jesus is saying here to, to them in His warning to them and to us, you know, you've got a problem. Humanity has a problem, and the problem with humanity is darkness. Um, we, darkness, is the, we like to talk about light, don't we? You know, we want to talk about, yeah, maybe my life was a little messed up, but it's a new day. You know, it's the dawn is, you know, this is a, the beginning of a new year, and everything is going to be light. We, we like to do that, but you can't really understand light unless you understand darkness, and that's where Jesus begins. Um, how do you understand darkness? Well, the culture that we live in confuses darkness. It makes an error. It confuses darkness with ignorance. As if, you know what's wrong is we just don't have enough information. We just don't know enough, and so we're kind of, 
you know, groping our way. But as we get more information, you know, everything is, we're doing good, we're doing good, but if we, as soon as we get some more information, as soon as we look more deeply into this, then everything is going to, everything is going to be better. You know, we're in the dark about cancer, but as soon as we get more information, as we study things, it'll become more clear. We're in the dark about global warming, but we can fix that with just a little more information. Uh, we're, we don't know what to do about poverty and homelessness, but what we need is some more insights, some more information, and we'll, we'll get it all, all figured out. Our only problem is we're really in great shape, except we just don't know enough. Think about a couple who come to marriage counseling, and, you know, they're looking, they're coming, they're looking for light. They're looking for that little missing piece of information they need to have a splendid marriage relationship. You know, it usually is, we just need to learn the rules of communication. But after doing this for 50 years, I would say that what they probably actually need is personal repentance for the darkness and selfishness of their own hearts. And that's something nobody wants to get too close to. Darkness is really the, think of it, this is the stage for, for human chaos and failure. We can't see what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. Jesus puts it this way. He says, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. And I'd ask you to think of that, that that's, if anything, that's an understatement, at least to our uh, Western ears. Um, pure darkness, utter darkness, is the end of progress. We so rarely experience utter darkness. We think, you know, it's twilight, it's dark, we're camping, we got a flashlight, we got the Milky Way. Um, Pure darkness is the end of progress. Like those uh, Egyptians in Exodus 10, they didn't move. They couldn't see anybody even in their own house. It was a dead stop. Um, and, and so it's an understatement to say he doesn't know where he's going. If he's going anywhere, it's, it's probably not a good place. Proverbs 4.19 puts it in a graphic way. Um, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. The way of the world is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Now, stumbling, you know, old people stumble. I stumble over a one-inch high mat in the kitchen. Um, and we think, well, it's okay. If you stumble, that's okay because, you know, you recover your balance and you get on. But, but the word stumble seems to have a more... <laughs> That this is bad. You don't want to stumble in the biblical sense. Listen to what Proverbs 24, 16 says. The righteous falls seven times and rises again. Falling, that's like even stumbling is you recover your balance. And if you fall, you know, you're flat on your back or on your stomach or whatever. Um, but the righteous, when they fall, they rise again. But... Uh, the wicked stumble in times of calamity. The contrast seems to be making it stumbling is terminal. We think of, you know, stumbling and bumping into, into a chair in the middle of the night going to the bathroom. But it might rather be understood as this is the stumbling of stumbling off a cliff, off a 200-foot high cliff. There's no recovery 
from that stumble. That seems to be the, the way that, that, we, that we ought to think about it. And it gives you the picture that there's a lot more here. It's not just, you know, we just need a little more light. We just need more insight, and it'll all, it'll all come out right. Because Paul says in, in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says that, that darkness is a kingdom, and that there's a rule of darkness, and that we're in bondage, a domain of darkness. Um, it's, like, it's like gravity. You know, if there wasn't gravity, it wouldn't fall. And of course, there's lots of good benefits to gravity, but gravity is always working. It's always lurking. It's always trying to catch this Medicare recipient uh, and send him to the ground and to send him to the hospital and to send him to recovery and to send him to the grave. Um, it's always working. It's, uh, it's, darkness is always at work. Darkness is the outworking of the evil of the human heart. That's what darkness is. You know, in John chapter 3, where John um, gives us that beautiful picture of God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. But in John chapter 3, verse 19, just a couple of verses later, he says that people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. We love what comes from our hearts. And what comes from our hearts um, is evil and a love of darkness, um, which means that we don't look for, how far do you want to look? You know, when we see darkness, what do you think of? Well, culturally, don't you think of, of you know, those really gross sins, you know, that, that other people commit, you know, murder, adultery, um, grand larceny, um, human trafficking, you know, not that those things aren't evil, but when we think that way, you know, one thing you know is you're not looking at yourself. You're, we're not looking at ourselves. Um, and yet when we do that, when we think, you know, that's right, people love darkness because their deeds are evil, and we think, you know, it's those people out there, what we're doing is we're giving ourselves a free pass that the Bible does not give us any right to have. Because, you know what Paul said in Romans, all have sinned. Not all except you and me. All have sinned. All have fallen short. All have not made the grade. All have not lived in light. All find themselves in darkness. Darkness is simply the human heart expressing itself, rising up against the heart of its creator. Um, the, it's the human heart rising up against the God of heaven and earth. If I could sum it up this way, I'd say darkness is not just the absence of light, it's the opposite of light, it's the enemy of light, and therefore the enemy of life. So what's the answer? Well, obviously it's light, but the question is what kind of light? And so what Jesus is saying here becomes so significant because, and this is the second point, that Christ the light is the answer to human darkness. When you read in verse 35, uh, Jesus says, you only have the light for a little while longer. You know, that's part of the, war the warning. 
Um, but it's also really good news because what that means is that there is light. There is light for the darkness. And if you back up from John chapter 12 and flip back a few pages to John chapter 8, you find one of those famous I am passages where Jesus talks about himself in, 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 with, in vivid and compelling imagery. Uh, in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. What an amazing statement that is. The light of the world is not more knowledge. It's not some um, esoteric, it's not, it's not the, the province of very highly educated academicians, you know, people in universities. Um, it's not a socioeconomic theory. It's none other. The light of the world is none other than the Son of God. This, brothers, brothers and sisters, this is not a secret. It's not a side note. Um, it's a central theme in Scripture. Consider Isaiah chapter 9. Um, those who, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shined. For to us a son is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah knew that the light of the world was the one who was coming, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Or think about the way that, that the Gospel of John begins, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then he says, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Um, Jesus is the light of the world. But what does that mean for you and for me? What are the benefits of that? Let me suggest three benefits that come from Jesus being the light, your light, and the light of the world. The first one is that you actually can live by His light. You actually can live by His presence uh, in your life. Back to John 8, uh, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me says Jesus, will not walk in darkness, but will have the life, the light of life. You'll have life-giving light, um, a way to live, a way to walk. Back to chapter 12, verse 35, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. The implication is that if you have Christ, you can know where you are going. You can begin to see what life is about and what your purpose is. Your purpose as a person created in the image of God is illuminated by Christ. Um, another thing that you can have, the benefit of Christ being the light of the world, is that you can be transformed by the light. You can be changed by it. We worship Christ, the light of the world, but we're also changed by Him to become like Him. And so, instead of stumbling through life, you know, to destruction and confusion, and you get to the end of your life and say, I don't know what it was all about. It was all just dumb. Um, you may become sons of light. Look at chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus says, believe so that you may become sons of light. You know, what does he mean when he says that? It's not, you know, like the sons of Norway or the daughters of the American Revolution or the sons of the pioneers for any oldies who are here. Um, 
To say that you're a son of light means, do you know what this expression means? A chip off the old block? Nobody ever says it anymore, but, but it used to mean, you know, the son, he's a lot like the father. He's the image of the father. He's got his characteristics. And so what he's saying is, we're transformed to become like Jesus Christ. And Paul gets to the root of this in Ephesians 5, verse 8, when he says, For at one time you were darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Transformed by the light of Jesus. Which brings me to the third benefit of having the light of Christ, which is this. Because Christ is the light of the world, you can bring the light of Christ to the needy world. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, in Matthew 5, uh, the, one of the most, the, to me the most amazing statement in the whole Sermon on the Mount is this, Matthew 5.14. Jesus says to his followers, you are the light of the world. There's a neck snapper for you. Um, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So if the news that Jesus is the light of the world is the best news in all the world, then the second most astounding and best news is that uh, as Christ transforms you, you in, in those seats out there, the people I'm looking at, transforming you, transforming me to be light in the world of darkness. Um, it's mind-blowing, and it raises the question to ask, you know, am I, am I a light in the world? Is the world a brighter place because of my presence and my life? Not just your smile, uh, but because of your life. Um, the bottom line is we need to ask ourselves the question, Jesus says, believe in me that you may become sons of light. Say, do I, do I believe in Christ or make it more personal? Do I believe Christ as if he's standing there telling you, giving you this warning, and you either believe what he's saying, you believe Christ, or you don't. The call is to believe him or to make it even more practical. Am I believing Christ? Is this the current uh, state of my life? If there's only one thing you take away today, I hope it'll be this one, this one thought. Um, faith is not a background app. Faith is not running silently in your life, unseen, unsolicited, sort of hidden away like background apps are hidden away on your computer or on your smartphone. Um, it's faith is active, it's visible, it's working. Um, so we ask that question, where do I see that in my own life? And Jesus says that, you know, this is the question with, with urgency. It may be the most urgent question to ask, um, have I, am I believing um, in Jesus Christ as the light? Which brings me to the third point of this message, and that is this. The darkness is real, and it starts in here, and it spreads outward everywhere. Christ is the light. The third point is this. Brothers and sisters, believers in Jesus Christ, don't confuse the light of Jesus with the fake lights 
of this world. I was going to use the word faux lights because that's cool, but um, it's confusing. And everybody talks about fake things in our day. So let's just go with, um, don't confuse the light of Jesus with the fake lights of this world. And there are fake lights. There are lights that draw your attention, that seem to offer. It looks like they've got answers. They look like paths. They look like hope, but they aren't. At best, they're shadow lights. At best, they've got some little inkling of, of the real light, but their basic fundamental character is going in the opposite direction. What are they? Well, start with Satan's light. Um, strange as it seems, Satan projects something like light. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So at the deepest and the darkest and the dirtiest, um, it may be the evil one that's sending out a light that you're confused about. Um, but more than that, there's the culture's lights, lights of the culture, truths that society is run on, but are darkness rather than light. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter uh, 4, verse 4. He says, um, you know, your neighbors are surprised that you don't run with them. They're like, they don't get on, they don't understand why you don't get on board when they say, hey, this is the way we roll around here. Um, and when they don't get it and they don't understand why you don't follow their truth, then they say all manner of evil things and dark things uh, about you and to you. And that can be a lot of pressure. It can be a lot of pressure to have your culture saying, you're crazy. You're, you're, you're out of step. You're, you're on the wrong side of history. Uh, it can be really powerful unless the light of Christ is what's running on the screen of your life. But besides Satan's lights and cultural lights, the most dangerous lights are personal lights. Um, personal lights are our own version of the truth. Um, they're forged in a fire of our minds around a view of the world the way we think it is, or more importantly, the way we think it ought to be. And it's pretty hard to argue about those things that you think are just the way things ought to be. Um, and, you know, that's true of other people as well. It's, it's once we get a hold of an idea, it, it may be the dumbest idea ever. It may be a wicked idea, but once we've got a hold of it, it's a, our personal light, and, and it takes dynamite to, to loosen it up. So how do you know the difference between true light and fake light? And... Uh, to me, an even more important question is, how do you teach your children the difference between the true light of Christ and the fake lights of this world? Let me suggest three, three ways, three sort of tests that you can use. The first is that the true light leads us back into fellowship with God. The purpose of the light is to restore fellowship with God. That's why Christ, the light, entered the darkness that's why he went to the suffering. That's why he went to the cross, entered the darkness of the grave, entered the darkness of hell to bring us back into fellowship with God, which John says in 1 John is, is a fellowship that he wants everybody to, to be involved in and participate in it. Um, but the fake light keeps trying to push God 
into the number two position. He can be there, but just make sure he's number two. Just make sure he's an also-ran. Just be sure he's, he's a background app, not actually working in your life. The second way you can tell the difference is that true light leads us to love and to serve others, especially the needy. Um, again, looking at John in his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 9, um, whoever says that he's in the light, you with me? Um, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there's no cause for stumbling. Stumbling's not going on if you love your, if you love your brother, love your neighbor, love your enemy. Um, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's John's take on it. Um, fake light blinds us to human need. It's the human need is all around there, but it just we kind of glaze over um, because it's out there. Uh, the fake light says, you know, yeah, you got need, I got needs. Um, you know, it always is pushing us to the front. And then, lastly, the true light leads us to a life of of shining light into the world of darkness. Um, the true light—that's what it does. The true light is impelling you to be a light in the world where God has planted you and placed you. Consider the passage we read earlier, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look at the things that, that Peter says about who you are and what you've got. Um, Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people owned by God. Um, you've been called out of darkness into marvelous light. You got all those things going for you. What are you supposed to do with it? He says, oh, yeah, um, you, will be, you are to proclaim the excellencies of him. The excellencies, the one who called you to light in the first place. Um, Think again about that, that Matthew from the passage from the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, 14. You are the lights of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what the true light does. It's saying, how can I be a light in this world? But the fake lights want us to be thinking about anything else. The fake lights are distractions. Um, we're like, when we listen to the false light, we're like Martha. You know, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're, you're, all, you're busy about a ton of stuff. You know, you're, you're frantic and you're frazzled. Um, you're distracted. You're missing the one thing. And the fake lights want to get us as frazzled and, and, and frantic as possible so that we don't have time uh, to look at the light of Christ and let it seep down and out into our lives. Uh, sometimes that's our computer. Sometimes that's um, our, our smartphone. Sometimes that you fill in the blank. Um, the things that, you know, I just don't have time to read the Bible, you know, because I got so much going on. Um, Jesus said, one thing is important. Whew. We've been talking about light, the light of Jesus Christ, who came to crush the darkness of the world and the devil and our own hearts. 
But I know that some of you are feeling the weight of darkness right now, right in this place. A darkness that can be felt. It's, maybe it's you've lost a lot in life. Or maybe you're just lost in life. And you're at the point of despair or have thoughts of suicide because it's all, there's no light, there's no way out. I just want you to know that Jesus has good news. Jesus has good news for you. There's more, there's more than enough light in Christ for you. Life-giving light that's found in Jesus. You know, if you feel that he's failed you, that, you know, you asked him and it, it, it feels like he hasn't given you the life that, that you wanted and you asked for, I'd ask you to consider if that thought might be a lie, a fake light that he's failed you. It's a, it, maybe it's a word that's coming to you from culture saying, you know, you, you know the, a worthy God, a worthy God would march to your tune, um, to your desires. But the one who is the word himself, Jesus Christ, is speaking to you today in his word. Um, he's saying, in my light, you will find light. In my way, you find life. Come to the light. Come to Christ. Look to him and walk in his way. Come and join others who, who know that darkness is real, but that the light of Jesus Christ is more real. But then there are others of you who are feeling rather wonderfully full of light today. Uh, the only thing that might be casting darkness across your wonderful day is that this sermon's gone on way too long, um, but it will end. Um, all around you just kind of seems to be light. Anybody like that here? I don't know. Uh, there are a lot of them around. Um, and sometimes we just, you just can't understand, you know, why do some people see the life so hard and so dark? Um, but I'd ask you to consider this. Um, is it possible that the reason everything seems light around you because you've made your own light? You've started with yourself and you've ended with yourself and you're just basking in your own light. You know, things, you know, maybe Jesus is your backup generator. But you're really running on your own light. Um, all the markers of culture, they're kind of in place in your life and you know, you, you look at the way you live your life, you look at your morality, and you say, yeah, I like, I like my morality. I think I have a pretty good morality. I think I have a pretty good standard. Um, I wonder what God would think about that. Um, there's only one thing that I would say, and that is, um, in the words of Scripture, there is a way that seems right to a person, but it ends in death. It ends in darkness. There is a light that seems right to a person, but it ends in darkness. Um, but Jesus is the one who says to you, if, this is, if you're just up to here with light, Jesus is saying to you, um, hear my voice. Um, I'm near you for only a little while. It isn't always the same forever and ever. Your life is a bubble. And bubbles burst. The night is coming when no one without Christ can walk, 
or work or live. Believe in the light. Believe in the light of Christ as he's offered in Scripture that you may be sons and daughters of the light. In Jesus' name, amen.